0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. For those of you uh, who this is your first time joining us, let me introduce myself. My name is Christian Keeter, and I am on staff at an international discipleship ministry called Mentoring Men for the Master, which is based out of North Carolina on the east coast of the U.S., which is where I live with my beautiful wife and two wonderful daughters. So we are in the middle of a conversation on meditating on the word of God. This is going to be part three. And so if you have not heard parts one and two, I would encourage you to pause this episode and go back and listen to those because it's important to hear those first, especially, especially episode one. Um, Episode one is probably going to be the most important episode in this entire series because it's, it's when I talked about Um, relying on the Holy Spirit to take the Word of God and to move it from our heads and place it into our hearts. Because when it's just in our heads, we may agree with it intellectually, but when it's in our heart, we really believe it. It becomes real to us. And so I just want to repeat that because that is our focus. Even though we're getting into the mechanics of Bible study and getting into some pretty specific ways of studying the Bible, I don't want this to become a cold, dry, rigid exercise where we just become more intellectual. I want to keep us focused on we're doing this because we want to study the Word more so that we can meditate on it and do it and apply it because we love Jesus, because we want to know him more. We want to experience him more. We want him to be more real to us in our practical experience. And so I just wanted to say that by way of introduction. If you haven't heard those two episodes, go listen to those first. But if you have listened to those, then let's carry on the conversation in part three of our study on uh, on some tools on how to meditate on the word of God last time was uh, word studies and today we are talking about context context um let me let me give you some examples of what i'm talking about when i say context because context is one of those things that is so important that if we take things out of context it can completely change their meaning Uh, you know this just from some Just from day-to-day life, if somebody takes just one phrase out of a larger conversation that you said and then puts that phrase up, it may completely misrepresent what you actually said because it was taken out of context. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. Suppose I was to say, I was just burning up. I was just burning up. That phrase, I was just burning up. Well, and then I say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that I was just burning up? You might say, well, obviously, you were really hot. Maybe it was a hot day outside, or maybe your air conditioning was broken or something, but you were hot. But what I want to tell you is that context actually determines meaning. Let me repeat that because that's so important. Context determines meaning. So let me give you an example. Using this example, if I were to say I was just burning up, but suppose the sentence before that was... I was driving down the road and that guy just pulled out right in front of me and I was just burning up. That has nothing to do with the temperature of my body, I'm saying that it made me mad. I'm saying I got angry. Or suppose I was to say, yeah, I caught the flu and I was just burning up. I wasn't hot because I was outside, I was fevered, I was sick. Or or maybe, maybe I was outside, maybe, yeah, I went to the beach, it was so hot. And there were just so many people in the water that I didn't even want to get in, and I was just burning up. So you see, context context is very, very important. I'll give you another example because these, this is fun and these are kind of funny. Um, suppose I say, I just about died. I just about died. Okay, so that statement taken in isolation, you're like, oh my goodness. What happened to Christian? He just about died. Well, what if I were to say... I was so embarrassed in this circumstance that happened the other day that I just about died. Uh, okay, so no, I did not literally just about die. The context shows me that, oh, okay, that was figurative. He he did not physically just about die. He was just extremely embarrassed. Or if I were to say, that joke was so funny, I I just about died. You know, because we have the, the, the phrase, die laughing, right? And so we see context, 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 um, shows... Uh, the meaning, whether or not a statement is to be taken literally, figuratively, what, what it actually means. And so when we're coming to the Bible, it is very important to keep things in their biblical context. So today we're going to discuss four contexts to keep in mind as you study the Bible. Now, as I was doing research and preparation for this um, on the infallible internet, <laughs> Uh, There are plenty of more contexts that you could discuss about when it comes to reading the Bible. You can get into all sorts of different um, specific things. But we're just going to focus on four for a couple of reasons. One, I don't want to totally overwhelm you guys just with every single exhaustive context that I could think up or find. Um, But also, because these are just four really big ones, that if you can implement these as you read and study your Bible... It will really really help you it'll help you a whole lot so the first context um and i'll write these out in the show notes so that you can go down there and look at them uh, after the episode the first one is what i would call the overarching context or the context of the entire bible and so this is what this is it is as we're reading a a passage of scripture and a or a verse or something like that and we're seeking to understand it one context to keep it in is the context of the entire bible because this is true since the bible is truth it won't contradict itself truth by definition cannot contradict itself if you think about it and so if you're studying a text and you're beginning to think well i wonder if it means this over here but then you remember another passage that says something that would lead you to say, no, it can't mean that, because over here, it's it's saying, it's saying this. And I hope that makes sense. Um, let me share with you just a couple of verses to, to back this up, because, again, I want to back everything up with scripture. Um, and frankly, I would love for you guys, um, the listeners, to check what I say. Um, I would love for you to go to the scriptures and to hold what I say up to the word of God, because you shouldn't just trust me just because I'm a person on a podcast or any other reason. Always go to the Bible. Never just take something just because it was a pastor, a teacher, somebody on a discipleship ministry, someone you respect. That's all good. That's great. And God has placed people like that in our lives. But it's very important. We got to do it ourselves. We got to go and see what the Bible says for ourselves, because people are fallible. The word of God is perfect, though. So coming back, let me me just read you a couple verses. Matthew 4.4, Jesus said, man, and he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice he doesn't say some words, he says every word. It's a totally inclusive phrase. Um, Down in 2 Timothy, uh, flipping there now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, the apostle Paul says, let's see, here we are. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice it says all scripture is God breathed. One more verse I want to read here is Psalm 119, 160, which reads as It says, excuse me, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so we see, it says the sum of his word is truth. All scripture is God breathed. Uh, Man is lived by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, we have to read the Bible in light of the Bible. We have to read the Bible in light of the Bible, and so this is just a very important thing. And obviously, if you're brand new to the Bible, you're thinking, "How on earth do I do that?" I, I'm just beginning to read the Bible, and you're telling me to read it in light of the Bible. I just, I'm, I'm saying this to give you again a tool. None of us have the Bible memorized perfectly. None of us, you know, have you know have arrived in in this. But as we grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures and as we seek the Lord, just to keep this in mind that okay. As I'm reading the Bible, can I think of other Bible verses that are also discussing the very thing that I'm talking about right here? That will really help us um, in avoiding error and making mistakes. So let me share with you an interesting example found in the Bible itself about this overarching context or interpreting Scripture in light of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 4, it is one of the accounts of when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he's there for 40 days, and uh, the enemy comes with three specific temptations that Jesus overcomes. He's victorious over that, and then he returns and really begins his ministry after that point. But one of the temptations in particular is very, very interesting. It is a perfect example of what we're talking about here. So in Matthew 4, let's see, beginning in verse 5. I'm going to read Matthew 4, 5 through 7 as an example. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So let's pause there before we read Jesus' response. What did the enemy just do? The enemy came and started quoting scripture to Jesus. Um, the enemy the enemy try, is trying to do the absolute opposite of this. He's trying to take scripture out of the overarching context of the Bible. So taking the scripture out of context to try to get Jesus to do something actually sinful or ungodly. And so... What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, what do we have here? That was Matthew 4 7 that I just read. So, what do we have here? We have the enemy coming, taking scripture out of context, trying to lead Jesus astray, using the scripture, but out of context. And what does Jesus do? He says, It is also written. So Jesus was doing the very thing that we're talking about here. He and Jesus, in essence, was saying to do that would be to disobey another part of the Bible. Scripture interpreting Scripture. So that's the first one, the overarching context, looking at Scripture in light of the rest of the Bible. The second one that I want to talk about is what is sometimes called literary context. And these are, you know, perhaps words that we don't use uh, in day-to-day life, but we do what they're describing all the time. And I'll give you an example. So literary context, basically, uh, it's, it's taking into consideration the type of genre of literature. We understand this intuitively. If I were to hand you, let's say, a comic book and a legal document. So you got in on one hand a comic book and a legal document. And I said, hey, read these two things you would, when you were reading them, you would handle them differently. You would read them differently, you would interpret them differently. If I handed you a menu for a restaurant, if I handed you a newspaper, if I handed you, I could go on and on, those are all different genres of literature, and said, hey, read these things. You know, in your mind, you're approaching it differently. If I hand you a novel, if I hand you a history book, so you're just approaching all of these things differently in your mind, and you're going to be thinking about them and responding to them in different ways, and it's because they are different genres. So the Bible likewise has different genres. I mentioned some of this briefly uh in the last episode, but only briefly. Um the Bible has uh prose and discourse where it's just basically people talking, something like a conversation of sorts, I guess you could say. Uh, then there's narrative, which is, as the name would apply, it's, it's a narrative. It's, it's telling of events that happen. And then there's poetry. The Book of Psalms are an example of poetry. And how you even approach those three things is different. Um, for example, if I handed you a poem today and said, read this, you would not automatically assume that every single thing written in the poem was... Um, let me me be careful how I word this, it would be, you would realize that some of this language is figurative. That's poetry. Um, In poetry, uh, language is used in beautiful ways to communicate figurative things. The truths are real, but it's using some figurative language. Another example of genre would be um, the letter, like a letter. Um, we, We sometimes call these epistles Um, Epistle is just a fancy word for letter, so there you go. And the letters are going to be found typically in the New Testament, which most of them are written by Paul. Um, The books of Romans through Jude are epistles. So let me give you an example of how literary context informs how we read the Bible. So if I'm coming to an epistle, one of these letters, say I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read the book of First Thessalonians. In fact, I, I was reading First Thessalonians yesterday. So, First Thessalonians is a letter, and you can tell uh, it starts off in a very, very clear way that it's a letter. In fact, let me let me flip to First Thessalonians just so I can have this open in front of me um, as an example. So, here you go: First Thessalonians, chapter one, verse one makes it clear that it's a letter. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Very clear introduction. Very, very, very clear introduction. And so, and then it has here at the very end, um, the last four verses of the entire book of 1 Thessalonians 5, 25 through 28 says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter It says right there, this letter, read to all the brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so you see, a letter will have a very clear introduction, a very clear closing, and so there are these ways to tell just by looking at it. But this is what, when it comes to the New Testament letters, and I'm just using the letters as an example of of how we handle genre, what we sometimes do with the letters is we'll kind of read through them, not consider the original context of the letter, not consider, okay, who wrote this? Who are they writing it to? Why did they write this letter? And so what we do is we kind of skim through the letters, looking for verses that just kind of stand out to us. And then we'll just take those verses and memorize them. Um, But we will unintentionally sometimes take those verses out of context. Let me give you a big, big example. Philippians 4.13. People, anybody can probably quote Philippians 4.13. Next to John 3.16, it's one of the most known verses in the entire Bible. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Very well-known verse. However, Philippians is a letter. And I'm actually going to come back to this example because uh, it's, it's a very interesting one. But you have to ask the question of, okay, why is the author Paul saying that? What is he referring to? And how does this apply to me? And so, we have to be careful not just to take little pieces of the letter out of context. And so one thing that I try to do, and again, I'm talking about the letters just as an example. I'll try to read the entire letter. So if I'm reading the letter of the letter to the Philippians, I'll try to read the entire letter. And then I can go back and focus in and zoom in on parts of it. It's only four chapters long in that example. If I'm reading the um, book of Galatians, the letter to the churches in Galatia. I will read the whole thing and then I will go back and zoom in. And so it's just a good practice because if you were reading a letter that somebody sent to you, you most likely wouldn't stop halfway through it. You wouldn't sit down and read a fifth of it and come back and read another fifth and then another fifth. It's like, no, you'd read the whole letter and then you might go back and focus in on certain things and ask the questions of, oh, well, what what do they mean by that? So that's an example of how literary context matters. Um, and so things like uh, we have um, in the New Testament, some examples of the context, uh, the literary genre rather, is uh, you have the Gospels, which are um, biographies about Jesus. They're, those are that genre is biography. You have the book of Acts, which is history about the, the church. Um, you have Romans through Jude, and those are letters. And then you have Revelation. And Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have some of the things that I already mentioned. You have narrative, you have prose and discourse, you have um, poetry, and and this is not supposed to be an exhaustive list of genre. I'm just trying to get you to think in these terms so that when you read the Bible, you say, okay. What what am I reading here? Again, this is just another tool. So the first context I've mentioned is the overarching or entire Bible context. Then the literary context, asking the question of genre. And then um, the next context, I think, is actually probably the most intuitive one to us. It would be the immediate context. That is to say, um, well, okay, what do the verses before and after this say? Let me... And that, when I gave the examples at the beginning... Um, when I was talking about, I'm just burning up and I just about died. Those are examples of immediate context, because I told you what I said immediately before it. And so when you're reading the Bible, let's come back to Philippians chapter four as an example, where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this verse, um, let me just use a silly example to make a point. Suppose somebody was to stand on the roof of a 10 story building and they're looking over the edge and they believe with all their heart that if they jump they can fly i don't encourage anybody to try this but they sit there and they say you know what the bible says i can do all things who strengthens me i can do all things through christ who strengthens me and so that means when i jump i can fly um we would say that that person is not faith-filled we would say no that person's foolish like that's that's silly that's silly that's Is that really what the Bible is promising here? Is that really encompassed when it says, I can do all things through him that strengthens me? But, you know, that's a silly example. That one's easy to see through. I mean, but there have been other times where, you know, I'm going to go buy, say somebody's like, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket and I'm just going to believe I'm going to win because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, we have to be very careful to keep things in context because if we don't, then we might think that they're saying something that they're not. And then we might act on a misunderstanding. And if we act on a misunderstanding, then I mean then we're just off base here. The results might not be good. So Philippians 4. So let's let's talk a little bit about the immediate context. Let me read um, the th- these Philippians 4 10 through 13 here. So you see, the verses before it shed new light on it. Paul isn't talking about jumping off a building and flying. He's talking about being content in any circumstance. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying, I have learned the secret of being able to be content regardless of what my circumstances are. I can be content in the good times. I can be content in the bad times. And so what is he saying? That ability comes through him who strengthens me. The ability to be content regardless of circumstance, that is supernatural and that comes through Jesus who strengthens me, the strength of Jesus at work within me through his Holy Spirit. And that's a different meaning. That's a richer meaning. And frankly, that's a way better meaning meaning than the other ones that we interpreted because that, that's just so much, now, I, now that I understand that, I can apply that. Because the same spirit that lived in Paul lives in me, according to the Bible. And you, if you've put your trust in Jesus, which means that that same contentment that Paul is talking about when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, we have access to that as well. Now, regarding Philippians 4.13, I do want to say something before moving on. Obviously, the statement, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, has a broader application than strictly this conversation about contentment. Um, I could indeed truthfully say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me when I'm talking about any of the things that the Bible commands. So anything that Jesus has told me to do, I could truthfully say, you know, by the power of his spirit, I can do this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can forgive I can love my enemies. I can do all those things through him who strengthens me. And that's all valid. And so my my point in, in doing this was just to show that, yes, this is the, the immediate context of this verse is talking about contentment, It's talking about contentment. And so, you know, once we, you know, as we begin to study um, Bible verses, we will see they have the truths behind the words, the truths in the text will have broader application than just what they immediately say. I'm just trying to give us some tools right now to keep us from misapplying it, from misunderstanding it and taking it out of context. We need to start with keeping things in context, and as we do, and as we study it that way, we will see broader applications into other areas as well. And so I did want to include that. um, The inverse of Philippians 4.13, it's the opposite side of the same coin. Is where Jesus said in John 11, I'm sorry, John 15.5, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so you take those two together and you can say, well, apart from him, I can do nothing, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we're obviously talking about um, things that are, that are kingdom matters, things that have eternal significance, um, walking in obedience to the word of God, bearing fruit in the context of John 15. And so I, I wanted to say that because... The last thing, as I was thinking about this, that I would want somebody to do is to be like, well, I'm not in a circumstance that requires contentment necessarily, so I can't lean on Philippians 4.13. No, it's not invalid for you to lean on, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, whenever you're doing something that God has called you to do. It's just invalid to do it when you use that just as a... Like a magic bullet for any circumstance at all whatsoever, and so i 'm just trying to help us see that, but at the same time i don 't want to restrict the application of this because that would I just that 's just not my heart at all, and so I hope that this makes sense so that's that is an example of immediate context um, uh, another and this this is just kind of a, a silly example as well but it's it's good to use silly examples because it just shows how absurd it can be to take things out of context. So I'm going to read from Matthew um, 4. Again, back in Matthew 4, verse 9. It says, He said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Wow. And that just sounds, you know, you could embroider that, you know, put that up on the wall. Uh, But that would be assuming that that's the Lord speaking, saying, yeah, I'm going to give you something if you fall down and worship me. But if you back up, you know, one verse, it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. So no, you see the immediate context was the devil was saying to Jesus, hey, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Um, Spoiler alert, Jesus said, no. He actually quoted scripture back to Satan and said, he said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve in him only shall you serve. But you see that just taking a scripture out of context is dangerous. We have to keep it in context. So the overarching entire Bible context, the literary context, the immediate context. And then the last one that I want to talk about in this episode is what I will call the historical or cultural context. So this, um, simply put, uh, this is when understanding um, the history of the time period or the culture of the time period of whenever you're reading uh, in the Bible, because a lot of time is spanned in the Bible, actually will augment your ability to understand it. So let me start with just kind of a a simple example. Going back to Philippians, I didn't plan on spending so much time in Philippians, but it uh, just happens and I'm rolling with it. So uh, going back in Philippians, he is, let's see, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And he has, there are what we call the prison epistles, um, which just means that they, these are letters that were written by Paul in prison. Um, he, he actually mentions this in Philippians 1, verses 12 and uh, 13. I'll read these just for just to, so that we're all on the same page here. Paul said in Philippians 1, 12, he said, "'I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel.'" Well, what's happened to you, Paul? So then he goes on to say, "So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul's in prison, he's in prison, he's in jail right now because of, and you can spend more time reading this because of like he said right there, is for Christ, because he was preaching the gospel. And so well, how does this augment our ability to understand? Um, And again, these are examples. In Philippians 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So let's just take that one verse real quick. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. How much richer is that verse now that we know that Paul is writing it literally from prison? This isn't a dude, you know, chilling on the shore of the Mediterranean with a drink in his hand with an umbrella sticking out of it, you know cooling his toes in the water, just chilling and saying, hey man, you just need to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. You know, well, that's real easy to do when you're chilling at the beach or things are going well, but things aren't going well for Paul right now. He's in prison. And so how much more, how, how much more meaningful is it that he can say rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I'll say rejoice. Or even moving down to the verses I looked at earlier, a few minutes ago, Philippians four, ten through 13, he talks about contentment while in jail. He's in prison. And so we see that uh, understanding some of the background of what's going on, the history of things, is actually very, very helpful. And so especially whenever I'm studying a uh, letter in the New Testament, again, that's Romans through Jude, all those books, um, I, I try to spend some time before even reading it to do a little bit of research, um, lots of wonderful resources online. Um, in fact, I will, I'll include uh, at least one uh, if not more, in the show notes, but so there's one in particular that's really helpful when when doing this kind of research. Uh, I'll always look into well what was going on at the time why what was what was the purpose of this letter? Who was it written to um, And you know I just want to understand the background to that. Let me give you another example of how uh historical or cultural context really helps. Uh, most of you have probably heard the phrase "good Samaritan." Um, the phrase has completely lost a lot of its meaning in, in modern culture. We'll say, "Oh yeah, he's a good Samaritan," and uh, what we mean by that is he's a nice guy, but we don't actually know what um, a Samaritan is. So, the parable of the Good Samaritan is recorded in um, Luke ten twenty five through thirty seven. So. Let me just do a brief overview of what the parable is and then show you how understanding some history behind it, the historical or cultural context really helps. So um, it says, uh, and behold, a lawyer stood up. And let me pause there. When it says lawyer, it doesn't mean somebody who practices law in our modern sense. A lawyer was somebody who was an expert in Jewish law. So the law of Moses, Um, just side note. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So let's pause Um, what is this lawyer doing? So this lawyer says, um, you know, elsewhere, Jesus has himself said that the greatest commandments in the Bible are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so this lawyer, I don't know if he had heard him at another point say that, but he says the same thing, where he says, oh yeah, yeah, this this is important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good, do this and you will live. But it says the lawyer was trying to justify himself. And so he asked this question, who is my neighbor? So what is the lawyer really asking in this circumstance? He's asking, who do I have to love and who am I allowed not to love? Because it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer says, "Mm, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And so that's what he's really saying. Who am I allowed to hate is basically what he's saying. So Jesus replies with a parable. It's not long. I'll read it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Let me pause. Priests and Levites were um, people who served in the temple. Uh, Priests would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people um, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. They would, um, and then the Levites, Levite actually means a descendant of Levi. It was one of the people groups of Israel, but they would serve in the temple as well. Um, And so these are basically really spiritual people that you would expect to do the right thing. But the priest and Levite, they don't help this guy who's half dead. They pass on the other side of the road and keep walking. But then it says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's that's an innocent amount of money, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus ends the parable and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So again, you can read this story. Get the general gist of it. It's like, oh, wow, these really spiritual people didn't stop to help this poor guy. But this other person did. This other person was the one who chose to be a neighbor and loved his neighbor as himself. And that's true. That's true. But let me share with you something here about how this really um, understanding the history will augment this more. Who were Samaritans? I briefly mentioned this in episode, cha- uh, episode four um, of this podcast, the overview of the Old Testament. Um, so I don't mean to get too much in the weeds here, but, uh, but this is interesting and I think actually very helpful. So the Samaritans, um, okay, long time ago, uh, around 1000 BC, was the, uh, the, the Israelites had a monarchy and there was a king named Saul, bad king. Kingdom was taken away from him, given to David, good king. Uh, you've probably heard of David. Jesus is called the son of David, um, sometimes. And then David had a son named Solomon. Uh, Solomon started off good, made some pretty big mistakes, and then Solomon's son um, also made some mistakes. And then the nation of Israel got divided, split in two. Israel was made up of ten tribes, ten northern, the ten tribes in the northern portion of Israel. Split and became their own nation, and they retained the name Israel. Two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed another nation. Just they were called collectively Judah. And so, when you're reading the books, uh, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, um, you'll you'll read about Israel and Judah. And so uh, Israel was really, really uh, wicked right at the outset. They abandoned the Lord. They went after idols. And then the Lord, after warning them time and time again for a long time, we're talking a long time, centuries, he, uh, he sent them prophets and everything. Then, In 722 BC, he allowed um, Assyria to come and to conquer the 10 northern tribes of Israel. He didn't let them take Judah but he let them take the 10 Northern tribes of Israel. Now Judah had to deal with Nebuchadnezzar about a century and a half after this point. But the point is this, whenever Assyria came in, Assyria began to live in that, the Assyrians began to live in that land as well as they, I believe deported some of the Jews as well. And so what happened was there was a mixed race of people. The descendants were the offspring of intermarriage between the Jews and the um, Assyrians. The capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. The capital city of Israel was Samaria. And you can hear that, Samaria Samaritans. And so this, this happened centuries, hundreds of years before we get to the time of the Gospels. And so the Samaritans are a, a, um, a race uh, of, I guess, descended from the intermarriage of the northern Jews and the Assyrians. And so you can, and in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see some people in the land opposing the work of the people in Judah. And those are the Samaritans. They were opposing the work of what God had told these people to do. And so what happened was this created a huge racial animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, mutual hatred. Let me give you an example from John chapter 4 of this. Um, So Jesus is passing through Samaria, and he's alone. And then this is, I'll start in John 4, 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And it says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. But listen to how the Samaritan woman responded. The Samaritan woman, this is John 4 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So you see, in the text it tells us right there, it's like these people don't even do they don't deal with each other, they don't even interact. The fact that Jesus was speaking to her was already breaking some big cultural barriers. So you see how understanding that historical component really augments the story of the Good Samaritan and other stories about where the Samaritans make the appearance as well. So we've talked about the overarching entire Bible context. We've talked about the literary context. We've talked about the immediate context and now the historical and cultural context. We have to get to application though. We can't stop here. We don't want to be just smarter. Again, like I said last time, the goal is not to be smarter sinners. We want to be, we want to be holy. We want the Lord to change us. We want to know Jesus more. And so if we just learn about the Bible, if we just study the Bible, but we don't actually do it or apply it, then we're missing it, guys. Then we're just missing it big time. It has to work its way out to application. Remember, uh, I read James 1, through 25 last week, where it says, don't deceive yourselves being a hearer only and not a doer of the word for someone who hears the word and doesn't do it. Is like a person who looks at their own face in a mirror and then goes and forgets what they look like. James 1.25 says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we see it's got to work its way out to obedience. It's got to work its way to obedience and application of the scriptures. So how does everything that I just talked about actually help us to obey the Bible? Well, it's, it's completely indispensable. It's It helps us underst- obey the Bible because to obey it, we have to understand it. We have to understand it. So let me continue with an example we've already had here. And, and maybe I'll go through a couple of examples. But the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now that we understand the, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and how, wow, this Samaritan was somebody who the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, but he went out of his way to help this Jewish person, his enemy. So now how do we apply it? We start asking questions like, wow, well, who, do I have any enemies? Are there people that I really don't like? How can I bless them? How can I be like this parable? How can I love my neighbor as myself? Because according to this parable, the people that we like the least are our are, are neighbors. So even if I don't like them and they don't like me, from the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's like, I should seek to do good to these people. So that's one way that it works well in application. How about Paul? We learn that he is in prison. We learn that, uh, you know, this, the, the, I can do all things through him who strengthens me means that I can be content in any circumstance. Well, let's take this to application. We start asking questions like, well, where am I discontent? Where do I need that kind of supernatural contentment in my life? What do I need to do? And so you see, the purpose of understanding context is to properly understand the Bible. The purpose of properly understanding the Bible is to apply and obey the Bible. And the purpose of doing all that is because we love Jesus. Like I said last week in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's because we love him. We want to know him more. And so this is uh, this is just a super important part of the process. And, um, Again, this is a part of a larger conversation on meditating on the Word of God. So we're just adding more and more tools to our tool belt here and uh, growing in our ability to do this. So that's it for today, guys. As always, if you have any questions or comments, um, and the questions don't have to be related to the topic of this episode, any question at all about the Bible or anything like that, feel free to email me uh, directly at. I just want to talk about at gmail.com and I would be more than happy to read and reply to your email. But until next time, I hope you guys have a great week. All right. God bless you.